Well, all right. Blind Faith on KRCL 90.9. And Love Special Delivery, a version of it by Los Lobos. It's off their album Native Sons, where they cover some of their favorite California bands. Originally, the Midnighters did that back in 1966. This is Radioactive, plugging you into grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, and DIY creatives in our community. I'm Laura Jones, and coming up, an excerpt from the new season of Reframing the Conversation, a series of panel discussions curated by Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion at the University of Utah, drawing on students and professors to share their perspectives on issues of the day. Tonight, inclusive histories matter. But first, I checked in with Russell Roots at the Utah Film Center about Black, Bold, and Brilliant. It's a series that uses cinema as a mirror, and it's led by community members who guide audiences through their reflections and responses affecting the Black community. They've got an event coming up next week, so let's pass that microphone. Hi, I'm Russell Roots with the Black, Bold, and Brilliant programming team with the Utah Film Center. And I'm here to represent the Wild and Scenic Festival in partnership with Outdoor Afro and the Tracy Aviary. So, Russell, it's good to see you. This partnership with uh, Utah Film Center, some of our folks with Radioactive and KRCL, is constantly evolving and growing. And the next event is this film festival. Tell me how it came about and what we're going to be able to do. Well, it's actually going to take place at Tracy Aviary. It's actually, we're super excited to have this outdoor film festival. It'll be on Thursday, October 7th and Friday, October 8th, starting at 6 p.m. on each day. We'll be at the Kia Lawn. And on Thursday, you'll have a collection of short films you can watch. Um, And then on Friday, we'll have a feature film. And then afterwards, we'll have a post-film discussion with Sammy Elam, Nate Emanuel, Olivia Juarez, and Rashawn Lee. And Rashawn Leak, I recognize that name from the Radioactive team. He's stepping into this role in programming for Black, Bold, and Brilliant. What are the films about? What are we trying to kind of uh, center as we have these films and the feature film and the discussion? Excellent. Uh, Well, I mean, we're trying to feature Black POC, people of color, and indigenous voices in the outdoor spaces. So really, it's about our experiences with nature, public lands, and environmental activism. So what kind of films have we scheduled? We've got a really great film called The Crown, which is about uh, the first black man who's hiked all of the major trails like the PCT and the Appalachian here in the United States. Uh, We've got a great short film called Becoming Ruby, which is about a queer black woman who is uh, a bike rider. And uh, we have the feature films called Our Our Mother's Lands, which is about Malaysian women who are fighting against the state to stop environmental injustice in their country. And then the panel discussion with local folks of color and activists and folks who get out in public lands. Absolutely. So how can people find out more and get their tickets? There's a small ticket fee and you can get the link in the show notes tonight. But what is that link? Utahfilmcenter.org backslash black dash bold dash brilliant. Put a link in the show notes. What's in store for Black, Bold and Brilliant? Right now we're working with a strategic planning session. We're rebranding the program and we're looking... uh, And we're very excited about launching the program again in the new year, January. And then, of course, rolling into February with some Black History Month programming. Russell Roots, thanks so much. I appreciate the update. No problem, Laura. Anytime. So I always like to get suggestions from my guests for songs to play. What have you been listening to lately? Or do you have something to recommend? Absolutely. There's a new UK hip-hop artist named Little Sims. That's actually uh, S-I-M-Z. And she's got a great album called, um, you know, I Might Be an Introvert, but... um, the song on that album, Point and Kill, is a really good track, and it's uh, it's got 
it's a partnership with a, uh, an artist called Obong JR, which is super cool. And I love his work. He's an African artist that really does some cool stuff. So, I mean, I'm probably mispronouncing a whole lot of this. You know what? <laughs> it's still good. I get that the, you love it. The beats and the lyrics are what's the matter. Point and Kill, Lil Sims on KRCL 90.9. This is Radioactive, where we plug you into grassroots activists, community builders, and more. If there's someone you'd like to hear from, send an email to radioactive at krcl.org or leave me a voicemail at 385-800-1889. I'm Laura Jones. Tell me who it is you want to hear from, why you want to pass them the mic, maybe some questions you have or even a song that speaks to the issues or topics you'd like to hear from them on Radioactive. For the rest of the show, I'm going to share an excerpt from Reframing the Conversation, a series hosted by the folks from Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion at the University of Utah. Earlier this month, the topic was Inclusive Histories Matter, and it featured experts from across campus and the community to spark important conversations about racism, othering, and safety. Let's dive on in. Reframing the Conversation, Histories That Matter, here's Mary Ann Villarreal. Vice President for Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion at the University of Utah. Well, good afternoon, everyone. We're going to get started. Uh, We have a short amount of time and a jam-packed hour of incredible conversation ahead of us. Uh, My name is Marianne Villarreal. I'm the Vice President for Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion. And it's my privilege uh, today to welcome you on behalf of Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion, our partners at the Hinckley Institute for Politics, and the College of Education and the College of Humanities to the first monthly installment for this academic year of reframing the conversation. Before we begin our discussion today, um, I'd like to first uh, pause so that we might acknowledge that this land, which is named for the Ute tribe, is the traditional and ancestral homeland of the Shoshone, Paiute, Goshu, and Ute tribes. The University of Utah acknowledge it recognizes and respects the enduring relationship that exists between many indigenous peoples and their traditional homelands. We respect the sovereign relationship between tribes, states, and the federal government, and we affirm the University of Utah's commitment to a partnership with Native nations and urban Indian communities through research, education, and community outreach activities. This is the first time that um, I've read this publicly since uh, we put this uh, together with the committee on October of 2020. Uh, what I'd like to say is that uh, know that it's not just a statement. There are many people here in this room who are doing work, not only to acknowledge what that statement means, but to grow programming and education around it. And I invite you all uh, to join us to think about how we may both um, root and concrete that work that we have ahead of us. So reframing the conversation, we bring together experts from across campus and the community to spark important conversations around racism, othering, and safety. And it is here where we address contemporary subjects affecting today's campus and communities at large, and today is no exception. Our team grappled with the title of today. We we argued (laughs) over how it is that we would frame the discussion about the onslaught of misinformation about critical race theory, what it is, what it isn't, who it affects, how it affects, how we teach it, how we learn it. I was reminded 
of the article, Nuestra America, Latino History as U.S. History, in the December 2006 issue of the Journal of American History, written by prominent historian and my mentor, Vicky O'Reese, Nuestra America disrupted conventional narratives by examining what happens to U.S. history when we tell it as a story of U.S. imperialism, complicating constructions of empire and citizenship. I was drawn to work with Vicky as a graduate student because her scholarship unearthed both the agency that Mexican-American women leveraged in their home, work, and communities, and the systemic inequities that textbooks glossed over, especially as they cast these resilient women as passive consumers of the American dream. Vicky, like many Latino scholars, followed on the heels of those scholars from the 1970s and 1980s who sought to disrupt all of those conventions of how we frame race and power in the United States. It is in this space and the ongoing spaces that I hope that we will continue these discussions to understand, to share, to learn uh, what it is that we have as a responsibility as the University for Utah. I would like to now introduce uh, Dean Nancy Songner from the College of Education, who will also uh, introduce today's moderator uh, and provide foundational context for today's panel discussion. I want to thank both uh, Dean Culver and Dean Songer uh, for, for being willing to partner in this space, our Trends from Transform, who are always partnerships, and for anybody from other colleges, we always want to be representative of the scholarship that your faculty bring to the University of Utah. Thank you, Dean Scholar, I mean, well, Dean Scholar as well, and Dean Songer uh, to, uh, the, to the introduction. Good afternoon. I'm honored to be a part of this dialogue today. And in thinking about our topic, I asked myself a few questions. First, why are we having this conversation here? It's important because we are in the business of education and education includes all of these ideas, teaching, guidance, enlightenment, edification, development, improvement, coaching, and learning. We are the recipients, the instigators, and the shapers of education for ourselves and others. A second question I asked is, why is this conversation focused on inclusive histories? While I do not know all of your reasons or all of our reasons for this topic, I know that even as we are partially shaped by our and others' histories, we are not limited by them. Histories are not static, they are evolving. As Mohandas Gandhi said, a small body of determined spirits fired by an unquenchable faith in their mission can alter the course of history. I look forward to our conversation. With that, I'd like to introduce Dean Stuart Culver. Stuart Culver has been the Dean of the College of Humanities since 2018, and he's a member of the U faculty since 1993. In that time, he has served in numerous roles, including Chair of the Department of English and Associate Dean for Academic Affairs. His scholarly and teaching focus have been on 19th and 20th century American literature and culture, photography, film, and theories of popular culture. Dean Culver. Thank you, um, and thank you, Marianne, for making this all possible. I think this is an important moment for this conversation. Um, and thank all of you for joining us, both um, live and virtually. It's my pleasure uh, 
to uh, serve as a moderator on this uh, panel of, of very uh, accomplished people that I want to kind of introduce to you first. I want to begin immediately to my left is Dr. Kathleen Spencer Christie. Dr. Christie earned a number of degrees from this university, including a doctorate uh, where her dissertation focused on developing equity mindsets as a process for successful teaching of all students. Uh, she's served as a teacher, a principal, and an administrator in both in Los Angeles and in Utah, and has uh, developed a real expertise in, in multicultural education, which I hope she will be sharing with us. I know she'll be sharing with us. Uh, immediately to her left is our student participant, which is Camden Alexander, who is currently a sophomore and she's majoring in criminology and sociology. Camden also writes opinion articles for the Daily Utah Chronicle under the name C.J. Alexander. Um, and then to her left is Dr. Edmund Fong, uh, who is an associate professor in the, in the Division of Ethnic Studies and in the Political Science Department. He is currently the chair of Ethnic Studies and a scholar in the racial politics of the United States. He is the author of the book, American Exceptionalism and the Remains of Race. And then finally, to his left is uh, Dr. William A. Smith, who is a professor and of education and the, the department chair of education, culture, and society at the University of Utah. He's won a lot of awards, but I want to call attention to the most recent <laughs> Uh, maybe it's not the most recent, but the most recent I know about, which is a very prestigious award in our university. That's the Distinguished Professor Award for Scholarly Research. And um, that's for this, this year. Um, yeah, there are others, others there. And he's a, been a student of what he calls racial battle fatigue, which is something that we'll be talking about, I think, in the, in the course of this conversation. I wanted to begin by noting that, uh, as has been mentioned this summer, uh, there's a lot of discussion about uh, critical race theory. I guess it went back into the spring and fall of, of last year. Um, but a number of discussions about having um, state resolutions against or acts of state legislatures against uh, teaching critical race studies without any really any, any clear knowledge of what exactly it was that they were banning. I went back to the Utah resolution and note that at least at the outset of it, it gives us at, at the university and in our K through 12 um, system, a directive. And it says this, educating students in Utah's public education system on history, civil rights, racism, and the negative impacts racism has had throughout history is necessary and should be done in a thoughtful, historically accurate and appropriate manner. Um, unfortunately, the resolution went on to, to uh, misdescribe or, or provide some misinformation about what would be using the methodology of critical race theory to do that. And so we have this question before us is how, what is the appropriate way to address these issues? And we have a number of different perspectives. Uh, I thought we could start first by asking uh, Professor Fong. Um, whose work has been about American exceptionalism, which we could call the sort of structuring myth of mainstream history teaching in the United States. The idea that, um, that America 
is a nation founded not on um, national or ethnic identity, but rather on universal, unchanging ideas. Uh, and how, the, how this narrative may or may not accommodate inclusive histories has been a focus of study for him. So I thought I'd let him speak for a few minutes about that. All right, uh, hopefully everyone can hear me. So yeah, uh, you know, the idea of American exceptionalism has been around since the origins of the Republic, uh, you know, some 250 years or so ago. Um, and, you know, the idea is, uh, um, Dean Culver, uh, you know, laid out is the, the basic sense that, you know, this country, its land, its people is exceptionally sort of predisposed to liberty and freedom and that, you know, this was a kind of ideological sort of projection creation at the time of the revolution to sort of justify its rebellion um, against Great Britain. Um, and of course, this was an idea that was often appropriated uh, in terms of land, you know, um, and in terms of sort of the image, uh, um, the representation of Native Americans that the colonists had at the time of the revolution. Um, but that idea has been, you know, around in various forms, you know, throughout our history, and it's been something that, you know, reared up again um, uh, last summer somewhat not quite the same as the whole debate on CRT, but you know, in relation to it. And you may recall you know, the debate around the 1619 project uh, by the New York Times, which tried to foreground um, slavery's role um, in this, you know, the 400 year history, 400 anniversary of the first documented African slaves um, to the colonies um, in 1619. And then that became a flashpoint in the political controversy where um, the Trump administration uh, put together what they called the 1776 project. And, you know, at stake in that debate between the 1619 project and the 1776 project was, again, this sort of classic debate around American exceptionalism. If we hold on to those, you know, feel-good sort of stories about American exceptionalism, that this is a country founded on freedom and liberty without any sort of qualification, then how do we deal with slavery? Um, if we foreground slavery, then does that mean that all of those exceptional sort of ideals are a lie, right, hypocrisy? You know, the irony of this situation, is I, I teach a course, you know, I'll be teaching it later today on uh, racial politics in the U.S., is I use a piece by one of the foremost colonial historians, Edmund Morgan, which was published in 1972, and it was an address he gave as president of the Organization of American Historians. Remember, this is right after the, the Civil Rights era, 1972, where he talked about a whole new revisionism in, uh, on slavery, taking it seriously in the history of this country. And he laid out two pitfalls. One, to you know, sort of you know, foreground the usual story of American exceptionalism, that one that minimizes you know, the role of slavery, or one that sort of takes seriously the role of slavery but then sees all of those ideals as you know, some sort of hypocritical lie. He tried to chart in that essay, in that address, a path forward that refuses either of those binary choices, right? Um, and the sad thing is, the challenge that he laid out in 1972, we are seeing in the 1619-1776 sort of debate from last summer, that we are still stuck in that conversation about how do we include these, you know, sort of narratives in a more complex and inclusive 
understanding, right? So the point I want to draw is that, you know, inclusive history, I think the main thing, it's not just about, you know, being, doing what's ethically right, which is very important in its own right, including different voices, different perspectives on our history, but it's also about uh, generating accurate understanding of the past of this country, right? The fact of the matter is at the very same time that Thomas Jefferson is espousing the rights of man, all men are created equal in the preamble of the Declaration of Independence, he would never break from slavery. He would own over 600 slaves through the course of his lives, not freeing any of them until his deathbed, and then only his uh, slave children, if you will. That in itself is a testament about how we have failed to be inclusive in the stories we tell ourselves about our past, because it's only been in the past 20 years that the Thomas Jefferson Foundation, which runs Monticello, has finally acknowledged the whole family tree descending from the children Thomas Jefferson had with his slave, uh, Sally Hemings, who happened to be the half-sister of his deceased wife, Martha. Right, so, you know, history is filled with complex, vexing, sordid details, morally compromised for sure, um, and I think not only do we need to be inclusive about how we sort of grapple with those questions, but we also need to be, to know that this is ultimately to arrive at a better, more informed, more accurate understanding of history. Right, so I'll, I'll stop there. Thank you. I thought I'd ask Dr. Uh, Christie a little bit to talk about, because your work has been in the classroom and how to manage with students difficult conversations of this sort, like how do we talk about Jefferson? So I thought I'd ask you if you had any remarks on that. Well, thank you for the question. And Dr. Fong, I want to piggyback on what you're, you mentioned this accurate understanding. So in the public schools, of course, we have teachers who've gone through this, the uh, institution, right? And they're teaching from textbooks that are inaccurate. Some of them have had some classes, such as yours, where they may have learned something and they want to teach an accurate history. And so they, in turn, introduce curriculum to their students that gets challenged sometimes. What we have to do within the system is to bolster, help these teachers with the courage to do what is necessary, to do what is right. I mean, I think everyone sees and understands that um, being able to deal with inaccurate history is where we are right now. We go back to Texas, to what is it, South Park, uh, the district where there, just three years ago, there were students who were calling the, and it's an affluent white district where the students were calling, the white students were calling a few African Americans who attend the school um, by the N word. I mean, it, it got vir viral, it went all over the country. And so in order to address this issue, the uh, African American community pressured the district and said, you guys need to do some type of training. So first of all, the teachers didn't have that understanding. They weren't aware of how do I deal with these difficult issues in our school? What do I do? So those of us who work in the field and do this type of work, we offer training for teachers. And in that training, we have to address issues of white supremacy, 
issues of white power structure. You have to deal with that in order to help teachers understand what's going on here. Because if you don't have that understanding, you can't teach. You can't teach what you don't know. And so starting there in this educational system is where many of us who do this type of work in the system, that's what we have to do. So in Texas, they put together a plan. And this was a plan that was created by everybody in the school, including the school board. They came up with a plan. They had some professional development. During that professional development, I guess issues of white power, white privilege, white supremacy came up, and the white community went crazy. And this is where a lot of the rhetoric and the narrative you hear about don't, you know, you can't teach, it's gonna cause our kids to feel guilty. Or you can't teach anything that's gonna cause one race to, to feel superior over another, when that's what we know the system already is, right? So you can't teach what is the reality. And so this is what, and, and how it got labeled, based on how you mentioned um, ex-President Trump came up with this, uh, his order, executive order about what you can't teach. Somebody told him about CRT, which they didn't know anything about it, so he included that in his order. Somebody told him about, you know, whatever. So he writes it in his order, and now everybody is directed, can't teach it. Can't talk about it, can't teach it. So that's where we are as a system, or in the public school system. And I've got uh, uh, equity uh, workers that I'm coaching and mentoring. No, you just have to have the courage, just do it. And what, I mean, you, you can, not that you have to mask your language or you have to co cover it over, but we, we can't stop doing what has to be done. And so now, with the Utah proposal, they've come up with a good language in the front, but at the end of the proposal of the resolution, they tell us, and the state board did this too, that you can't say certain things or you can't make kids feel guilty or you can't put one race over another. I mean, so that's the dilemma that we are, but we're, we're gonna work our way around it. I mean, we, it just, we just can't. You know, so that's where we are. I mean, reframing that conversation? Yeah, we're gonna reframe it. <laughs> we're, gonna, we're gonna do it, anyway. I'm through. Yeah, just, I, 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 I need to make this one observation. I think one of the ways in which the governor slipped up is by saying that okay, we're leaving the university alone. This is only for K through 12. Mm. Assuming a kind of false distinction between what goes on in the university and the kind of research that we're doing and those teachers that you were talking about who are trying to kind of apply the knowledge mm -hmm. that they get in the university mm -hmm. to the classroom mm -hmm. and building that bridge is something that's become more difficult yes. by that assumption. Yes. I think that that uh, also, uh, the university is seen as a place with, of, of what they call academic freedom uh, that is licensed to do research off in whatever eccentric way you want. But I think what we're dealing with here is something called ne academic necessity. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. We're not free to teach this or not. It has to be done. It has to be done. And, and that's mm -hmm. the work that's ahead of us. I, I'd like to turn now to Dr. William Smith. Um, and, and have him talk a little bit about the, the work he's been doing on racial battle fatigue, both as it affects the, the classroom um, as, a, as a professor of education and how we 
address that topic and include that topic in our story of the national history. Uh, thank you for the question. And before I start, I'd also like to mention that I have a joint appointment in the School of Transformation in the Department of Ethnic Studies. So I have a joint appointment in Education and Ethnic Studies. Um, I think Dr. Fong, Dr. Christie have really set the table pretty clearly and pretty accurately. What happens when you are dealing with situations like this? You produce a climate, and that climate could be a climate of exclusion. And when you have a climate of exclusion, sometimes what happens within that climate is that those young people don't feel like they have a sense of belonging. They don't feel like they have a place where they can achieve, that people believe in them. So even if you don't do something intentionally, just your mannerisms or the, or the kind of doctrine that you're talking about can exclude them. What we do wrong, and let me first say, start with this. I know of no college of education, teacher ed program that has classes in CRT that teaches students about CRT. Most uh, pre-service teachers have to take one, maybe two uh, required diversity courses, and those aren't CRT. If I were to give them a test on CRT, they would fail miserably. So no teachers that I know of in the United States of America are teaching CRT, okay? And it's a, very, it's a confusion across the board on the left and the right about what CRT is. But what is happening in these classrooms is students do not feel safe. The teachers make a mistake, and these are teachers who have a degree of sympathy or empathy. But the mistake that they're making to all students, but particularly racially minoritized, sexually minoritized students, is that they teach to the, the mind. They teach to the head. And that's not where you start. You have to teach to the body. When the body feels safe, it can learn. When the body does not feel safe, it feels threatened. It feels like that is a source of harassment. So when I enter into a room and a teacher or a professor says something, particularly about my group, or a group that is very close to mine, that is seen as an attack. So all forms of oppression, whether it's gender, sexuality, class, race, ethnicity, and you could name it ability, those things are a source of violence. The body codes an attack, like racism, as a violent act. So imagine yourself as a young person in a classroom, feeling that you're always under attack. How can you learn? How can you feel safe? There was a, a nice study. They, I, I, I challenged their, um, their conclusion because they just didn't have enough insight, I believe, in my opinion, to see what was really happening. But it's, a, it's about a classic study on who holds brilliance. And they've been doing these type of studies for about 30, 40, 50 years. And when you ask any group of people who holds brilliance, men or women, almost everybody will say 
men hold brilliance. Women have brilliance, but men are more brilliant, irrespective of age group. This group of researchers decided we're going to ask some young people, and it's been done on them before, but we're going to ask young people, not just about men and women. So these were black students, white students, Asian students, and Latinx students. Who holds brilliance between white men, white women, black men, black women? The results will be striking to you. Who would you think was first? I think everybody in the room would say these young students, they were five and six-year-olds, and they coded uh, brilliance as really, really smart. What they said was, all of them, all those different groups, white men held the most brilliance. Who was second? You're all wrong. All of the students said white women and black women were tied. And they all agreed, including the black boys in the classrooms, that black men held the least amount of brilliance. So what kind of atmosphere is it for that little black boy to be in a classroom that as he grows, he's supposed to be a man, but everybody is watching what I say, watching what I do to see if I will fulfill a stereotype. And then what type of racial microaggressions am I feeling because what people think about me and my ability. You can't learn as much as you want in an environment that is set up for you not to feel safe. So we have to do a better job of responding to the environment and teaching in a way that we can touch all students with the body first and then the mind will follow. So Camden, you're the person who's actually taking these classes still. <laughs> so we'd like to hear a little bit from you. Yeah, of course. Can y'all hear me? Okay, great. Okay, so there's like a million things running through my mind right now, but let's see. Uh, just off of what everyone's saying, like I'm up here with all these doctors and they're amazing. They're great. I really love everything they're saying. But it's like, it's hard as a student. Like, um, I don't know. When uh, Dr. Fong was talking about like American exceptionalism being taught and like how our history books are inaccurate, like that's my history that's affected. I'm not represented well in the history textbooks and I have to learn and grow up with that. And so do my brothers who are people of color, so does my other family. And like, we don't have the same opportunities, but it's just, it's difficult because, I don't know, my mind's going everywhere right now, but it's just hard because I, like at the end of the day, like in, sorry, I'm gonna backtrack a little bit. So uh, Dr. Smith was talking about how at the end of the day that like as a person of color, I have to try with my appearance, I have to try with my mannerisms, I have to be, do things harder and I have to like try harder than my white counterparts. You know, I have to be more articulate, I have to do all these things, I have to accomplish so many things just to be seen as like an equal. And it's like, it's hard because I don't like growing up in this kind of world. It's, it's not fun having to try so much harder just to be seen on an equal playing field. And so all the things I have to do just to be on that same field, it's hard. And I, it's hard that we don't teach critical race theories in school because 
I like I've grown up with racism my whole life and I've seen like signs of racism I just didn't know what the name was for it like I grew up without learning about racism and it wasn't until really like high school and college that I actually learned systemic racism I actually learned the things that were pitted against me and you know I see it in the housing market now I'm on, searching for an apartment and I see it now and it's like I go to the bank and I go with my mom because she's white and my dad's black. I, I see it there. I see it when I have to go to school. I see it in the criminal justice system. I, I see it everywhere. And it's just hard growing up with that. And, you know, I, I don't know. Like, it's, it's not a fun world that I live in. But, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to change it. I'm trying to help people learn. But there's only so much I can do as a student. And I'm not an educator like these doctors are. I wish I was. I'm not, though. And like, I, I don't know how I can change it. I wish I did, but I don't know. That's how I feel. Okay, thank you. In, in, in listening to you, I, I, I'm, it occurs to me that, you know, one of the key issues with CRT is precisely being able to recognize racism in microaggressions, in the everyday activities instead of in the spectacular lynching events so that everyone, I could even remember um, our former president saying, I don't have a racist bone in my body. Um, and that seems to be where, what triggers, I think, um, a lot of the, um, the white reaction saying, oh, I'm not a racist because they don't think of racism in those particular spaces and places. I don't know, do any of you have further comments on, on what Camden said? Yes. Um I mean, you're not alone. I mean, you know, I grew up in Oakland, um, and uh, you know, some of my earliest memories, you know, my parents owned a grocery store in East Oakland, which is a predominantly African American neighborhood, um, uh, um, generally lower socioeconomic status as well. And they owned a grocery store there, and some of my earliest memories were my parents sort of instructing me to sort of shadow some of the customers. I remember, I'm five or six years old at this time. <laughs> and they're asking me to kind of shadow, you know, kind of follow certain customers around to make sure that they weren't stealing. So, you know, I was already introduced into a systemic form of racism, right? Discriminatory behavior um, before I was even aware of that. Um, and I did not have the education in Oakland to give me the words or the concepts or the understanding to frame that. But, you know, I knew that there was something, I mean, race is so evident in Oakland, so I knew that there was something you know, there's not there's a disjoint between my lived reality and the reality that what of what I was learning in education. So we certainly need sort of I wish I had CRT or some version of CRT, you know, growing up, because then that would allow me to, you know, understand what was going on for me and my socialization and my family and in Oakland in general. Um, and you know, another example of that, I have one of the most powerful examples here. Uh, is I once had a student who, you know, in one of my classes early on about 10 years ago, um, this was um, a white female student in one of my ethnic studies courses came to me and just unprovoked, she was telling me about, you know, where, where in grade school here in Utah, she had a project where they had to, I think this was for Black History Month, 
where they had to write a book report on some famous African-American figure. She chose Martin Luther King Jr. Her teacher suggested that she wear blackface as a way to better you know, embody the, or represent you know, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. So she related this experience to me. I mean, I don't know if it's true or not, but you know, I mean, so that was, that was shocking to me. And then this would have only been like, you know, when she was going to grade school, like just, you know, in the 2000s, right? And so, I mean, I think the need for education, uh, you know, piggybacking what Dr. Smith said about making a, a you know, a classroom that's safe and inclusive. I mean, imagine if this student had, you know, worn blackface to deliver a report on Martin Luther King Jr. And there were other African-American students or other people of, you know, students of color in that classroom. How would they have felt, right? How would their body have felt unsafe or unwelcome, right? Um, so, I mean, I think these issues that, you know, mm -hmm. Camden raises, you know, are still very much present. They've been there even when I was a kid. So. Yeah, I, my uh, advice to Camden, too, is to, to keep studying. I think it's all of our responsibility. We have to keep learning. We have to keep understanding. Our students deserve it. They need it, our society. We've got, we just gotta keep learning and understanding, you know, this American uh, exceptionalism is a joke. It's not a joke, but, it's, but it is a joke. I mean, it, for many of our, our students, our communities, it, it isn't a reality for us all. So we've gotta keep, we just gotta keep at it. And I just have to share this. So I have a granddaughter who started her first semester at Cal Berkeley She's lived in a bubble all her life from California, lived in a bubble. She's African-American and, you know, grandma has been trying to help her understand what's going on around her, but she's been, you know, had it pretty easy. She has taken, a, she's taking a class called the 1619 Project. It's an English class. I'm like, so we have class every night after her class because <laughs> so we can talk about what she's learning and, and I'm just so excited. I mean, I just get palpitations when I'm like hearing her talk because she's have to learn this at her age. So my advice, Camden, keep learning. And that is just some of Reframing the Conversation, Histories That Matter, a discussion held earlier this month by Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion at the University of Utah. Check tonight's show notes for a link to the entire archived conversation and their upcoming calendar. My thanks to Eunice Contreras at EDI for tonight's excerpt. I'm Laura Jones. Democracy Now! at 7, Thursday Night Psych with DJ Mike at 8, Gianni's Dirty Boulevard at 10.30, I Don't Sound Like Nobody at 1 a.m. with Rich, Illustrated Blues with Jolene at 3. I'm going to leave you tonight with Lump. It's the collaborative project between Laura Marling and Tongue's Mike Lindsay. We cannot resist on KRCL 90.9.